As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. The single headline, John I.C., and this will be good to get into Jeremy Stretch, head of G10FX at CIBC, is what they do, which we don't do, is they go out three years to 2025, and there's a miraculous conception of inflation plunging. There's no other way to put it, from an eight level uh, down to a stunning 2.4%. That is optimism of a certain level. Jeremy Stretch, in all your years of central bank watching, can they get out near three years and look for an inflation, a disinflationary trend, as the ECB publishes today? Or is that wishful thinking? Well, I think it's interesting that the ECB are still anticipating that inflation will still be above their target threshold by the end of 2025. Uh, I wouldn't have been surprised that the ECB felt it would appropriate, or at least the uh, ECB staff had attempted to try and find a, a narrative that allowed the inflation profile to get back to target. But clearly, because of the upward revisions that we've seen in the profile for both this year and next year, it is going to be very, very difficult to see, or it's going to be a very tough ask for uh, the ECB to be able to force or drive inflationary pressure down without uh, probably a greater degree of economic dislocation that they're currently pricing into their forecast. So I think they're perhaps a little bit too too ambitious and too optimistic in terms of the growth trajectory. Uh, and if, if uh, we are going to see inflation falling back, it is going to be a very much a challenge that is going to have to be met by probably a more aggressive policy reaction than, than the uh, market has been or certainly we have been uh, considering. Well, yields are climbing in response to that, particularly at the front end of the bond market. Your German two-year is up by 11 basis points to 2.22. The 10-year is up by 8 or 9 basis points points on a 10-year right now to around about 2%, 2.02%. Forgive me for throwing so many numbers at the wall, but I do want to go through the inflation projections again from the ECB. We now see average inflation reaching 8.4% in 22, before decreasing to 6.3% in 23, with inflation expected to decline markedly over the course of the year. These are still really high prints, Jeremy, just to go through core and their projections there. Projected to average 3.4% in 24, 2.3% in 25, that's headline. When you strip out food and energy, that's projected to be 3.9% on average in 22, and then rise to 4.2% in 23. Can we just talk about that clip higher, Jeremy, that they're looking for in core inflation through next year? Your thoughts on that and just how far they can push the terminal rate, given what you expect to happen with GDP and what they're looking for as well? 
Well, yes, that's right. I think that, I mean, I think, you know, when we've, you know, we've obviously been talking a lot about uh, the Fed projections over the course of the last 12 hours or so, and, and there is a real dichotomy in terms of the inflation profiles that we're seeing from those requisite central banks and the pace of the uh, moderation in terms of uh, the Eurozone is very, very glacial in effect. And of course, as you quite rightly say, those core inflationary pressures are going to be uh, pronounced over the medium run. And that is going to be a real difficulty for the for the European Central Bank. So I think in the context of some of the discussions you're having at the after the Fed last night as to who has the greatest uh, potential policy problem or policy dilemma, then I think the ECB definitely falls into that remit because, of course, uh, as we know, there are those fragmentation risks as well. So it's going to be very difficult to see how the ECB is going to be able to square the circle by uh, trying to tighten policy but without creating uh, significant degrees of uncertainty against what is still a backdrop of very elevated and uh, amplified core inflationary pressures. And they do concede that the euro area economy may contract in the current quarter and next. So there is a hint at that recession, although not necessarily coming out with the same kinds of prognostications as the Bank of England. Also talking about food and underlying inflation, Jeremy, is the ECB, which I think was a lot more interesting in terms of the statement than the Federal Reserve, is the ECB just sort of getting ahead of what the Fed will have to deal with in recognizing a stickier inflation for a longer period that goes beyond what the markets are currently allowing for? Yes, I think that's true. I think we are going to see core inflation proving to be remarkably sticky. So yes, we can see headline inflation pressures uh, gradually easing if we are correct in assuming that those energy forward curves are correct. But core infl- core inflation in terms of service-driven inflation, I think, is going to be much more challenging to drive out of the system. And it may well be the case that uh, we see many central banks facing difficulty to really squeeze core inflation back towards target thresholds over a two-year forecast horizon. So in a sense, that's why it's still interesting that the ECB are still struggling to get back to their target threshold, even in year three. And that just underlines that uh, inflationary pressures, I think, are going to be much more pronounced and stickier particularly if we're going to see uh, wage growth remaining relatively elevated uh, because of uh, still relatively tight labour markets, even if we're seeing a moderation in macro activity. What a challenge. Jeremy Stretcher, CIBC. Thank you. I'm already leaning to January 12th. I won't, you know, we've got a jobs CPI report. CPI data, right? Jobs report January 6th, I believe it is. But, but I'm sorry, I'm already going to January 12th to get another look at inflation. Someone doing that as well as Jonathan Pingle, Chief U.S. Economist at UBS Securities. Jonathan, I got a study uh, for you in your academics from years ago. And that is simply, is there any history of any central bank modeling and getting right a major three-year disinflationary trend. The Fed's trying to do it, and in Technicolor this morning, the ECB has elevated up inflation for this year, and they go out to a nirvana in 2025. Is there any predictability to that exercise? Well, thanks, Tom. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, first of all, yeah, forecasting inflation is hard. Um, I I think that has been proven um, in spades in 2022. Um, when we look back at history, you know, getting this exactly right on the way down is probably going to be as hard as getting it right on the way up. Um, when I think about the central bank experience, um, you know, you've had some immaculate disinflations following World War II is is one example. Um, it was certainly the case that Chairman Greenspan seemed to be, you know, kind of ahead of the curve in the productivity gains in the uh, mid 90s and and the disinflation that that led to. Um, but, 
you know, let's face it, a three-year, two-year, even one-year head inflation forecast at the moment um, is, is pretty difficult. Um, and in some respects, um, you know, I think the Fed's been dealt a better hand than the ECB um, because they are getting some data in hand that starts to look like there is some real disinflation coming. What do you make, though, of how much of this disinflation really stems from some of the more variable areas, which include gas, natural gas, gasoline, crude products? Well, you know, in the U.S., you know, certainly the energy, um, you know, the energy price is moving up and down, um, you know, has played a role. But you've also got um, a number of components of inflation, like, you know, used car prices that, you know, you know, exploded higher in 2021, new car prices up 20%. Um, and we're already seeing used car prices fall 2% a month, the last few CPIs. So um, it is a lot of volatile components. And, you know, what goes up, you know, could come down quite quickly in the US. I mean, you know, in Europe, and in the Eurozone, you know, the reasons to think inflation might be a little stickier than the US, um, particularly if the Fed does engineer an increase um, in unemployment. Um, you know, in the U.S., that does typically prove somewhat disinflationary, even if you think there's a flat Phillips curve. You know, in the Eurozone, they don't have quite the same flexibility in their labor markets, um, which, you know, could also lead to sort of more persistence um, in the Eurozone relative to the U.S. Uh, for inflation. Although the ECB did come out with perhaps an even more hawkish statement than the Federal Reserve in terms of how much higher they revised upward their inflation expectations for this year, for next year, for the year after. From your vantage point, are the balance of risks, have they changed when it comes to both the Fed and the ECB in terms of either going too far or not going enough? Before it was not going enough. Do you think now it's more evenly balanced? Oh, yeah. No, I, I definitely think it's more evenly balanced, Lisa. No, that's a great point. Um, I mean, you know, we actually are expecting a pretty weak U.S. economy in the latter part of 2023. You know, that's both because households are exhausting their excess savings, um, which we think is going to, you know, start to bind for more households and restrain consumption. <clears throat> and, and on top of that, we're going to still pile the mounting effects of, you know, what's been a very rapid tightening cycle. Yeah, the ECB is a little bit further behind the Fed. They're, they are playing some catch up, um, but there as well, you right. know, they are facing a tough economic outlook as well. So I, I do right. think these risks are becoming more balanced. Are we at neutrality? For rates? Yeah, in the U.S. Are we at neutrality in terms of the central bank ballet? So I, I would actually, I mean, I, you know, Chair Powell yesterday said he thought policy rates were in restrictive territory. I would agree with that. I mean, there's a pretty big margin of error for whether or not um, <clears throat> you're really at neutral. Um, <clears throat> or what, what I, I don't mean to interrupt, but just because, Jonathan, just because of time, this is really important. What is the single variable of our mystery about that collar around neutrality? Is it inflation? Is it jobs? Is it GDP? Is it just we don't know? Well, I mean, we just don't know. I mean, it's also a, a longer run concept. I mean, <clears throat> you know, there's a lot that goes into the neutral rate. It's our demographics, our productivity growth. Thank you. Um, but it's, you know, pinning it down in real time, as Chair Powell's explained, is going to be Can he impossible. come on again, an honest guest? That was great. Are you suggesting that the other guests no. are not? Yeah, I am. <laughs> I mean, Jonathan, thank you. That was brilliant. What he absolutely nailed there, which drives me nuts, is all, it's like the dots. 
all this gazing, and Pringle nails the demographics, nails the technology we're living in, we don't understand, et cetera, et cetera. Jonathan Pingo there of UPS. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. We can sit on the Bank of England for longer by all means. We're going to do that now with Ashok Batia, Deputy CIO for Fixed Income at Newberger Berman. Ashok, first to you, just your reflection, your thoughts on what we've learned from two central banks in the last 24 hours. Yeah, I think the the overriding message is that the, the the time of central banks being able to hike rates without an impact on the real economy and real growth, which was a lot of the story of 2022, um, that's over. And we're now transitioning to this environment where central banks are divided over how do you wrestle with inflation rates, which are very high, but likely to come down, and the future trade-offs to growth. And, you know, this, this dissension and the, the collared uh, dissents on the BOE really just put an exclamation point on it, which is there are some individuals that, you know, think and want to conduct policy more on a forward looking basis, where others are still view the risk management attributes of, of policymaking as we've still got to be very, you know, dependent upon inflation. And this is the debate that's going to be at all the central banks for for next year. How do you invest around that? How do you take the messaging and use it to to really create a, some sort of thesis based on the fact that a lot of other people are discounting it wholesale and say the data will be what the data will be and we don't buy what they're selling? So I think the biggest investment implication is, is fixed income volatility is going to go down. Um, you know, you look at this year from low to high, the U.S. 10-year moved in about a 300 basis point, just under a 300 basis point range. We're probably heading back to something next year where, you know, we're going into this environment of slower hikes, fewer hikes. You know, I think consensus is broadly correct on that. But what that means is expect 10-year interest rates in the U.S. to move maybe in a 100, 150 basis point range. It's going to be a dramatic reduction next year. And what that means is that income, high-quality income, it's going to be more volatile still on a day-to-day basis. But ultimately, you invest on the idea that with less volatility, you can earn income and high-quality income in, you know, in a lot of fixed-income markets. And you stay positioned. You have some positions on that um, some of the, the more dovish um, – uh, you know, central bank views that inflation can fall and the growth impact 
um, that, that that could play out and, and lead to some higher returns in fixed income next year. Ashok, as we approach neutrality or approach restriction, is it easier to have confidence in a portfolio of fixed income? I mean, now that we're here, is it easier to prosecute a portfolio and to hold a portfolio? Yeah, and I, I think the biggest driver of this, and Powell's actually, I think, been, been quite articulate on this, which is three big drivers of inflation. You've had goods inflation, housing inflation, and then services, ex-housing. You, you go back three months, all three of those were rising, and who knew, who knew when they were going to stop? Um, now we're looking at goods prices in you know mid to high single digit deflation. We're seeing um, some you know higher conviction that over the next six months housing prices are going to come off, but it still leaves this issue of the third, which is the the services ex housing inflation. But we've transitioned to this environment where call it two out of three of the big CPI categories, we have a little bit more confidence of we know what the trajectory will be there. And that's the key thing that gives you a little bit more confidence that some of the left tail of significantly higher rate possibilities are being reduced pretty quickly. Ashok, thanks for being with us today. We always appreciate it. We'll catch up with you a little bit later in the year, I'm sure. Ashok Batia there of Newberger Berman. We have the advantage, and particularly after the Bank of England decision today, which I'm going to call collar dissent, those looking for a more aggressive rate move and those looking for a more dovish rate move, to have someone, I, I can th only think of Adam Posen as the equivalent. John Riding is chief economic advisor at Bring Capital with service to the Bank of England, his Bank of England, and also to the Federal Reserve System as well. And he joins us now with decades of experience here. What will you listen for from Governor Bailey is he has hollered dissent, something totally unfamiliar to Americans. Well, occasionally we had that lot. There was a bifurcation in these dissenting views. Two members of the committee didn't want any change in rates, which I find somewhat remarkable and speaks to the, the, the dovishness of, of some people on the committee and, and one person wanting Catherine a larger Man. than 50 yeah. basis point rate hike. Um, and then you, you, then you had six going along. So, so the, the what, what were the two who were, were not expecting, not, 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 not expecting, but not wanting a rate hike when the inflation rate's running at almost 10%? Now, what's interesting, compare that to the Fed. And you ask what, I hope Governor Bailey sounds like Jay Powell did yesterday because he, for once, he put in a, a terrific performance and he kept pounding away at the markets with the terminal rate 5.1% it's going to stay there for a while don't look for cuts until there's clear evidence that inflation's headed back to 2% and as you make the point the markets are saying well we're still not even going to price in a, a terminal funds rate above 5% all comes down to inflation and um, I, I think that markets to some degree are looking for central banks to react as they reacted when economies had gone into recession over the last two decades when inflation wasn't a problem. Inflation is a real problem and a much bigger problem in Europe. You made reference to the, to the Bank of England. The UK is a small open economy. Um, the exchange rate has a really big impact on inflation, much more so uh, than, than in the US. Um, and of course, the bank also has to navigate. It'd be nice to get a little update on those uh, 
troubles in the uh, gilt market back in September forced the Bank of England to begin easing again with temporary quantitative easing the day after uh, they uh, confirmed that they were going to start uh, quantitative tightening the following week and they had to abandon those plans. Well, John, let's unpack some of this and let's start with the nature of the dissent on the BOE, the individuals that didn't think we should hike interest rates today. They believe in long and variable lags. They think that cumulatively over the last 12 months we've done enough already and that's going to hit the economy next year. We're going to go into recession. They ultimately must believe that inflation is going to be on a downtrend. What would you say back to that? Well, let's use the language that the Fed has adopted. Policy needs to be not just restrictive, but sufficiently restrictive to get inflation down. And ask, is a 3.5% interest rate when inflation is at around 9.5% restrictive at all? Real interest rates, interest rates adjusted for inflation are at negative 6% on the policy rate. And I, I, I don't know any economic theory that would say a negative 6% interest rate is a restrictive policy setting. So the message, and the message the Fed has shifted to, now they were late, but they continued easing through the inflation problem last year, but at least now they're, they're, they're getting that message out. And, ha- and how have they done their messaging? They said, it's not a question just of how fast we raise rates. That's, that's a lesser important question now. It's how high and how long are we going to keep it there? Uh, and it, it, I, I think that the, the Europe and the, and the Bank of England are struggling with the how high. I think the Fed's largely got the message right. But then the next part of the message is going to be how long. And that's what the market simply just don't believe. They believe that, that the, the recession is going to lead to lower inflation, uh, and that's going to do the Fed's and Bank of England's and the ECB's job for them. Uh, and I, I think with these, particularly with these supply shocks on, on energy prices and still the horrible developments in the Ukraine, these, these policy rates, to imagine that a 3% policy rate would be high enough to bring inflation down, um, I, I just don't get it. There's also a disbelief, though, just to push back a little bit, that we could go from $18 trillion of negative yielding debt in the world to $1 trillion of negative yielding debt in just a couple of months and that nothing will break. And that suddenly we'd have this complete regime change that everyone would say that was going to be catastrophic and that suddenly it would all be OK and it wouldn't be enough. And suddenly rates had to go much higher. People don't believe that things can change this quickly without some consequences that we have not yet seen. How do you push back against that? Well, you're actually right. I mean, something did break back actually, in September, which which was the gilt market. And then you were in an uncontrolled um, rise in gilt yields because of the leveraged decisions that UK pension funds had taken, number of funds, in terms of buying UK government bonds on borrowed money so they could also invest in equities uh, to try and catch up with their underfunding. And what happened was those that that important. Now, why did they do that? Because central banks had kept interest rates too low for too long and had been buying the assets. And so banks got, pension funds got over leveraged. So something did break and other things may break. The break in the crypto market, I think is largely unrelated to um, these, these policy issues, but uh, things, things will break. Right. But, but if you abandon targeting inflation, which, of course, in a sense, the New York Fed has actually touched on that with this R star star concept. There might be the, You're a big the, the interest in rate that might need to be high enough to restrain <laughs> inflation might break the financial system. 
Yeah, I got to ask you a question before we run out of time. I, I, I've heard this story before. The only reason you got into Cambridge is your mother beat math into you. It's well, it's well, well understood. She sat at the kitchen table and said, Johnny, do your, do your math. Can the time continuum that you mentioned there be a substitute for level? Can the feds substitute a certain level of interest rates for getting up to a Bullard-like excess terminal rate? Yes, I, I think they can. But the difference between the Fed is that they have policy rates getting cl at least close to, if not in restrictive territory. And when they, and they're, and they're planning to, it's an ongoing process, they're going to get rates higher, and then they can let those rates sit. And I think that's where the conversation shifts. I have... The, the problem with the bank thing with ECB is policy rates are nowhere near restrictive, so time cannot substitute for that. There and you go. I, I, I just imagine that <clears> – <throat> look at the, the, the articles that the Fed wrote on opportunistic disinflation back in 1994 and 1995 because that is going to be, I think, if, if the Fed revisits that, the genesis of a framework for the idea that we can just sit at a restrictive rate – for a longer period of time to push down on inflation. And that will work providing the Fed has credibility uh, and providing policy is on a restrictive setting. John, this was awesome. Thank Can you. I just tell you how great it is to see Mrs. Riding in the studio as well? Fantastic. Isn't that great, TK? Love it's that. It's great. Love that. John, thank you. Thank you. John Riding of Bring Capital. Wait, wait, wait. France or Argentina? Oh, After the hand of God incident, I've got to go with France. You just can't let that go. Can't let it go. Can't let that go. We're going back to the 80s here, Tom. 80s. I have no idea what you're talking about. The I just Bram and I are looking at the hand of God. Yeah, exactly. We're like, okay. Is that sure. like the voice of God? You don't know what Diego did? No, no. I have no okay. clue. Get on YouTube and find out. Okay. All right. Ridiculous. John, who am I working with here? <laughs> John's like, no comment. Yeah. <laughs> this is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.